0: They spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So says verse 21 of our lesson this morning from the book of Acts. Quote, they spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Sounds an awful lot like grad school. However, this is not, in fact, grad school, but is instead Athens circa the year 55 A.D., where, according to the book of Acts, the apostle Paul has just arrived on one of his missionary journeys. Now a century and a half after this moment, that is to say approximately 150 years after Paul's stop in Athens, the early church theologian Tertullian will derisively ask, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And what Tertullian meant by this now famous question is why should Christians bother with things like, say, philosophy and art? Or put differently, how can foreign ideas such as these possibly help us either better present or better understand the Christian gospel? It's a question that presses in upon Christianity to this day, as there are many who think that too much education can be dangerous, that there's somehow virtue to be found in being anti-intellectual. And we need not get into the weeds on that fact this morning, other than simply to note that it is a fact. Now instead, we need only look closely this morning at how Paul himself likely would have responded to this question. If he had been asked, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem, Paul would likely have responded, well, Athens has plenty to do with Jerusalem. For in fact, I myself, Paul, would never have gotten a toehold in Athens if I weren't already fluent in their own art and culture and ideas." In other words, knowledge for the Apostle Paul is power. No matter where that knowledge comes from or what that knowledge is about. And so what follows then in this sermon will be a look at how Paul expertly uses his own vast knowledge And please understand, Paul was a deeply learned man. What follows in this sermon will be a look at how Paul expertly uses his own vast knowledge in presentation of the Christian hope, followed by a look at the limits to which his knowledge then could take him, and by extension, then the limits to which our own knowledge can take us. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Because that's where we're ultimately going. But for now, though, I want us to shift gears momentarily, and I want to begin by telling you a story. It's the story of an experience I had some 15 to 20 years ago. I was on a layover in the Tokyo airport at the time this story takes place. And I had just deboarded my flight from Minneapolis, and I was now looking for my gate for my next flight, which, if you're curious, was to Seoul, South Korea and much to my dismay none of the signage in the airport was in English and I meanwhile was traveling alone and so I quickly realized that I did not have the tools necessary to navigate my way to where I was supposed to be and so after having tried on my own for several minutes which is to say after having walked around pointlessly and aimlessly for a while I finally turned to a man standing nearby and I asked him if he could possibly help me. But no sooner had the words left my mouth than it became clear to me that he did not speak English. Thus, my words to him were of no effect. And so whether or not he could have or could not have helped my query now was completely beside the point. For he and I could not even establish a baseline of communication for beginning. Thus he simply shrugged his shoulders, and I in turn nodded and shrugged my own, and that was that. At which point I then turned to a woman who was also standing nearby, and I asked her if she could help me. But just like the man before her, her face too showed immediate incomprehension. And so she shrugged, and I shrugged back, and that was that. There was a whole lot of shrugging going on in this story. And so from there, this proceeded to happen with several other people. I, all the while, growing more and more frustrated by and more and more disoriented in my current circumstance. But then suddenly a man standing nearby who clearly had been watching me in my helplessness and in my incessant shrugging. This man approached me and he said, Sir, I speak English. How can I help? And so I explained to this man my situation and he immediately understood my need. And he also happened to know his way around this particular airport. And thus, he was able to quickly direct me to where I needed to go. And that is the end of the story. I promise you'll see its relevance in a moment. But for now, let us shift gears again, and now let us return back to Paul there among those Athenian philosophers and grad students. Where according to the text in Acts chapter 17, Paul is now in the famed Areopagus an outdoor venue for gathering to discuss oratory and philosophy. And as the text puts it, Paul was about to, quote, start preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so as the text picks up, we see him begin his discourse. And as he begins speaking, the text invites us to imagine the faces of those listening to him. Invites us to imagine the incomprehension immediately forming on their faces. Invites us to imagine the subsequent shrugs of their shoulders. Invites us to imagine all of that nonverbal evidence that indicated to Paul that they were not tracking with what he was saying. And so we read on and we watch as Paul takes all of this in. And we watch him realize all at once that he and his audience do not have a common baseline for conversation. We watch him realize that if he is going to get anywhere with this audience, with this particular audience, then he's going to have to begin speaking to them in their own language first. And so watch then what we see Paul do in verse 23. Here in verse 23, Paul says in effect, okay, okay, listen. I'll stop talking about this resurrection stuff for a minute because I see this is really, really confusing y'all and creeping you out. But let me say this then, resurrection aside. He says, I've paid close attention to the art and the culture here since my arrival. And I see, for instance, where you have a statue that's dedicated, quote, to an unknown God. You know that statue? Well, what I am trying to tell you, Paul says, has to do with this same unknown God. Only I am here to tell you that this God has made himself known. So here now Paul can see some of these folks registering the slightest comprehension. Paul can see the way that they're beginning to recognize their own language being spoken to them. Paul can see how they now think he is about to reference to them some hybrid of Stoic philosophy or natural philosophy or something that they already comprehend. And so what I have to tell you Paul then continues, is that this God that you think is unknown, that I'm here to proclaim to you is not at all unknown. This God, contrary to your beliefs, cannot be contained by a statue or by a building or by the entire earth because this God, this God you consider to be unknown, this God is the creator of everything. And here at these words he sees his audience again looking slightly confused trying their best to understand, wondering to themselves, now what kind of monism is it that this man is trying to present to us? One creative force behind everything? Is he speaking to us of some take on an Aristotelian unmoved mover? What does this mean? And so once more, trying to meet them where they are, Paul quotes, from memory... One of their most celebrated poets. That is to say, Paul now uses words they themselves quote and hold dear, but instead uses them to describe his God. He says to them, for this God is so big, so ubiquitous, so all-encompassing, so much more than some simple unmoved mover that, quote, in him we live and move and have our being. And at these words, Paul can see his listeners inching forward in their seats. For they've just heard an idea of their own used in an all-new way. In this God we live and move and have our being? Yes, Paul continues, it's as your poets say, only the truth goes far deeper than your poets know. For your poets themselves say that we are his offspring, and that is true, only what this means is so much bigger than you and your poets have imagined. Because this unknown God took on human form in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And after having been crucified by human hands, he was resurrected to life three days later. And since he was human, that is, since he was offspring, just like us, this means that your unknown God, who through this incarnation in the person of Jesus is no longer unknown at all, this means that your unknown God will raise us to newness of life one day as well in the coming resurrection of the dead. At which point, according to the text, quote, when they heard Paul speak of the resurrection of the dead again, some sneered. But others said, we want to hear more. And that's where we'll stop in the text for today. For so it was that a baseline had been established between Paul and the Athenians. So it was that a shared language had been made possible. So it was that the gospel message had been expressed in terms that Paul's audience could understand. And sure enough, some scoffed that day. But as the text tells us, others leaned in to hear more. And if you read on a few more verses, you see that eventually some of those Came to believe in the resurrection hope. Are you still with me? Okay, we'll come back to this. For now, let's listen to the words of this same Paul, words written years after this, words written by this same Paul to the church in Corinth, another town of great learning and sophistication, much like Athens. Writing now to an audience overwhelmed by how absurd their faith sounded, the ears of the learned and sophisticated culture around them. Writing of this, Paul says, well, remember, our message does sound foolish to people because ultimately our message is foolish. Don't forget that, Paul is saying. In other words, Paul is saying, never forget how absurd is the claim on which our faith hinges. For we claim, Paul is reminding them, that the very creator of the universe became human like us, which is absurd. And furthermore, we then claim that this God submitted to crucifixion at the hands of those like us, which is absurd. And then, that not being enough, we ultimately claim that the human being in whom God dwelt rose again from the dead three days later. Not just the God, but the human being in whom that God dwelt, which is absurd. Because dead people don't come back to life. So never forget, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, our proclamation does sound foolish, to those who don't believe it because unless that which we proclaim is true our proclamation is foolish but for those of us who believe it is true Paul writes this foolishness is the very power of God for the foolishness of God Paul writes referring to the absurdity of the resurrection. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. One of my favorite lines in all of Scripture, and here's Paul's point with it, Human reason is vital, absolutely vital. But when it comes to the heart of the Christian story, the claim upon which it all hinges, reason alone can only take us so far. It is to our benefit to know as much as we can about science, and about history, and about art, and about philosophy. It is to our benefit to know as much as we can about politics and language and literature and the humanities. To deny ourselves this kind of knowledge is not only to scorn the gift of reason and intellect given to us by God, but it is also to cut ourselves off from the very language of the beautiful world around us. Thus to scorn human knowledge is to scorn a common language It is to scorn a shared starting point. It is to scorn a baseline understanding. But then, Paul is saying, once established and once appreciated, that baseline understanding can only take us so far. For once we've met one another on a common plane, once we have established our baseline understanding, once we have demonstrated that we appreciate and understand the same things, then comes for us, like for Paul, the inescapable fact of the absurdity of the resurrection. As New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it in his book, Surprised by Hope, quote, we never claim that we have proved the resurrection in terms of some neutral standpoint for argument alone cannot force anyone to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead even though such arguments are remarkably good for clearing the way and this then leaves us right where it left Paul in Athens With some sneering at the absurdity, yet others leaning in to hear more. So what then has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Simple. Athens offers a language that invites folks to lean in. Simpler still. The wisdom of Athens helps some embrace the folly of Jerusalem. Case in point as I draw to a close. In 1947 the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas famously wrote these lines, Do not go gently into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And these lines, as central to the philosophy of the 21st century as ever were those Greek lines quoted by Paul in the first, these lines were written by Thomas as his father lay dying. Which is to say, as his father approached death, this was how Dylan Thomas found solace in the inevitable. By enjoining his father to rage against it. To be brave and heroic in its evil and irreversible face. For what other hope was there for Thomas? Death was final. There was nothing beyond. Today this poem stands as a towering example of the philosophy of life held by a vast number of people like the Stoics and the Epicureans before whom Paul spoke in Acts chapter 17, so many today now shout YOLO! YOLO! You only live once, and that's it. And nothing else. And that's what a great many people believe. And so in response to such a life philosophy what could be more comforting? What could be more of a salve on suffering than to be able to quote Dylan Thomas's words to those whom we love who are on the precipice of death and joining them? Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. What could be more comforting as death approaches for our loved ones? What could be more of a salve for suffering? Well, according to our own Pat Wood, the foolishness of the resurrection can be. For that, she tells me, at least as it's articulated in Acts chapter 17, that was the thing that gave her hope upon her husband's death in 2012. Writing to me in response to my solicitation of favorite scriptures for this sermon series, Pat writes, it was a very low point in my life. I almost felt like I couldn't go on. But then this scripture came to mind and it changed everything. In him we live and move and have our being. In this unknown God made fully known by Christ, In this God whose offspring we are. In this God who raised Jesus from the dead. In this God who will one day raise her husband and will one day raise all of us to the newness of life. In him, that God, Pat reminds us, in him we live and move and have our very being. And so witness now the difference between those who sneer at Paul's foolish message and those who lean in and listen for more. Come death's final call, those who sneer have only the dying light to rage against. That is all they can take from this powerful, lovely poem. But for those of us who lean in to hear more of Paul's foolish message, we hear Thomas speak of that good night that he calls death. And we then are reminded of another poet, an altogether more hopeful poet, who writes of that same good night, one short sleep past, and we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death thou shalt die. That, my dear family, is the difference between those who sneer at the foolishness of Paul's message and those who lean in to hear more. And the difference is all the difference in the world. And the point is that for so many, for so many that day in the Areopagus, for so many in the Corinthian church, for so many throughout the history of the faith, for our own beloved Pat Wood. The point is that for so many who now cling tightly to this foolish hope, the point is for people like us, many of us never would have come to this hope were it not for the wisdom of other poets and philosophers who helped us along the way. Yes, the point is that were it not for Athens, many of us never would have made it to Jerusalem. They spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas, Luke writes. Well, all thanks be to God that Paul knew those latest ideas. And all thanks be to God that Paul knew how to translate those ideas into the hope of the Christian gospel. And so might we, like Paul, never scorn human wisdom. But might we, like Paul, remember that human wisdom pales in comparison to the foolishness of God. Let us thank Pat Wood for reminding us that in him we live and move and have our being And let us thank God for the hope that one day, like Christ himself, we too shall wake eternally from that gentle good night. Amen.